Hey, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. And um, I want to um, start with this story. I, I just recently recalled it. Um, it's, it's from the, the story itself was really several years ago, but it's about this um, family, a Russian family named the Lykovs. Okay, so the Lykovs uh, put yourself in early 20th century Russia. This is an Orthodox Christian family, and uh, during the 1920s and 30s, um, Christians in Russia, then Soviet Union, were pushed increasingly to the margins of their territory. So, um, and this is mostly because of Bolshevik or communist oppressions. So these communities got smaller and smaller, more and more fragmented, pushed into further and further, more and more remote territories. Well, this, this family, the Lykovs, one day, are, um, are, are in this village, and the, the communists descend on this village, and uh, this, the father, Karp Lykov, what a name, Karp, Karp Lykov, is, watches his brother be shot right in front of him. And uh, as the oppressions continue in the village, he goes and gets his wife and children, and they escape out into the Siberian wilderness. No one uh, heard from Karplaikov and his family again. So far as anyone knew, they had died in the wilderness. Fast forward to 1978, okay? A helicopter doing geological survey in the middle of absolute nowhere, Siberia. That's, like, that's almost like the same thing. When you say Siberia, it just sort of means the middle of nowhere. That's exactly where the helicopter was, okay? And it had uh, just diverted off course and sort of got into this little valley. And the, the, while the pilot was turning around, he sort of caught a glimpse of something on the side of the cliff, about 6,000 feet up from the valley floor. And then he, he noticed that there were sort of rows in the mountainside. So he just noted the location of the site and then flew back to base. And then Soviets commissioned some scientists to go and see what was going on, if it was anything at all. Well, as this group of scientists kind of make their journey from the riverbed, the valley floor, to this little opening in the, in the cliff, they start to notice some, a few sort of human artifacts. There's a staff. Um, there's some uh, food. They uh, see a, a, a log bridge over a river. And then they come on the storage shed. The only thing in the storage shed are dried potato peelings. They walk a bit further, and in this opening, a clearing, they see the rows, just as the pilot describes. On the very far end, there's this little wood shed. It looks like it's just propped up by a bunch of debris, blackened, moss-covered. And as they approach through the clearing, an old man comes out of the shed. He approaches them. He's, he's clearly upset. He's bewildered. He has absolutely no idea what's going to happen. And they try to greet him. And what Lykov does, he just sort of stands there and he says, well, you're here. You might as well come inside. So he has them come inside. And inside, the way the scientists describe it is that it's, it, there's an, it's a dwelling not meant for human habitation. It's dirty, and yet five people are living in this little five-by-five shed. And they have been for over 45 years. They look across the room in this shed, and there's two young girls. They're pro- well, at this point, they're probably in their 20s or 30s. Right? And, they, and they say, and, and, they're, and they're reciting something, particularly the older, oh, it is, it's for our sins. God is punishing us for our sins. And they're terrified, and the scientists see it, and they immediately retreat, and they go out into the clearing. And then about 30 minutes later, the father and daughters come back out, and they begin a conversation. The girls don't speak Russian. They speak a sort of contrived language like birdsong. And so the, the, the Russians have to interpret that. They, they have been living an entirely isolated, secluded life for three, four decades. And as far as they were concerned, the oppressions were still going on. They're still happening, and they were still under threat. 
Now, I tell this somewhat detailed, weird story. I mean, these are like, you know, Russian versions of preppers, right? Um, I tell this weird story because, you know, they, they see this threat. They had always felt the threat. They always felt the threat. They always felt that they were vulnerable. They had to go further and further into the wilderness. They couldn't have any contact. So the Lykov children see the, the arrival of these scientists all of a sudden. Never seen, the two youngest had never seen another human being besides their family. They see this as God's judgment for their sins. We have done wrong. God has sent judgment for our wrongdoing. They see it as judgment rather than an intervention. And it's because their whole lives had been defined by a particular kind of narrow experience. And, it, and the best way to capture it is that they had put their hope in survival. Everything about their day was about survival what they were going to eat, what crops they were going to protect, and so on and so forth. And so their very hope hinged on surviving, on having a meal that day or the day after. So their, their expectations for the future had hardened around a very narrow, isolated vision of the future. Now, the, the, my purpose for our, for our time here, for telling the story, is, is this, that as human beings just in general, we often misperceive what God is doing in and among us right now. Right now. And that's because of the way uh, the pressures of our circumstances end up weighing on us. And uh, some of you have come in today with these sorts of pressures. As we already indicated, some of what we'll talk about today is infertility and miscarriage. But my guess is that some of you today have just barely made it through the door and that you're carrying wounds and hardship and that you feel afflicted and you don't know what else to do. You, don't, you feel at your wit's end. And you feel totally arrested by your experiences, all the feelings associated with them. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. We don't want to misperceive what God is doing here and now among us. Because, in part, we hold too firmly to expectations about the future. Our future has to go like this. It has to be like this, and then this step, and then this step, and then this step. And if we overly circumscribe what it is our futures will look like, then we close ourselves off also to what God may have for us a more expansive vision of hope and of redemption and of work. Affliction, as the story kind of indicates, affliction also leaves us feeling hopeless and isolated. And that's exactly how the Lykovs felt. Hopeless and isolated. And they didn't even know how to live with others anymore. Uh, The story turns out, it ends, the family, they don't leave the cliffside. The youngest daughter still lives there. That's the, that's the crazy part. Still lives there, alone. They've all died. They couldn't leave. Their whole lives are bound up in it. So if you turn, right, so it's an, a very different kind of story, but one where this, this kind of idea of hopelessness, a narrowly defined future, and of kind of being totally in the grip of our feeling in the moment, our experience in the moment, is there in 1 Samuel. So we're going to spend most of our time read, uh, in 1 Samuel 2, but what I want to do before we read that and get into the text is just kind of overview this, the story, okay? So 1 Samuel kind of marks in Israel's history a sort of new era, okay? The book of Judges ends with a really chilling line that people were doing and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. That's how Judges ends. They don't, everyone's doing what they right. There's no direction. The people are directionless. 1 Samuel begins with a story about a particular family, Elkanah, Penaniah, and Hannah. Penaniah and Hannah are the wives of Elkanah. Elkanah is a faithful man. We learn in the text that um, 
He is a godly man. And we know, we see some evidence for that because he takes his family year by year to Shiloh. Shiloh is where the tent of assembly is located. There are priests there. It's where prayers are held. It's where sacrifices are held. So when Elkanah takes his family there, he's doing what is right by the law and by his faith. He takes them every year. Penaniah has children. Hannah has no children. And Penaniah provokes and antagonizes Hannah for her childlessness. So year by year and day by day, she is confronted with the fact that she cannot have children of her own. And that's hurtful. It's hurtful. She bears that pain. One year they're in Shiloh and Hannah removes herself. She goes to the temple and she prays. She offers a very specific prayer. She beseeches God for a child that she promises she will consecrate to the Lord. She will give the child to God. All right. And she's praying so, her, her prayers are so animated and full of such feeling that the priest thinks that she's intoxicated. And so, she, so he comes over to rebuke her. How could you come into the temple, you know, drunk? All right. And she corrects the priest. No, no, you don't understand. I'm hurting. I'm asking the Lord for a child. I'm beseeching the Lord's favor. I'm without a child, and I would like a child. I want a child so I can give it to the Lord. And Eli, seeing that she's not drunk, blesses her. He says, peace be on you, and may the Lord grant your request. And the the way the story goes at the end, in due course, Hannah bore a child. And and she called his name Samuel after, that's the, the, the name of the book. Samuel means the Lord has heard. The Lord has heard my request and has given me a child. Now, the transition from, from chapter 1 to chapter 2 is important, but what I want to say here at this point is interject a comment. that um, it's, it's, It would be incorrect to interpret all of the infertility narratives in the Bible, and there are many. There's Abraham and Sarah. There's Rachel. There's Elkanah and Hannah. And there's one more we'll get to in Luke. It's a consistent theme. And one of the reasons why it's a theme is that because of the nature of the covenant, God makes his promise with Abraham. He says, I'm for you. You will be mine. Your people will be mine. I will be your God. We're for each other. It's a promise. That's what a covenant is. It's a promise. Infertility represents a sort of threat, a sort of side threat to the covenant, you see? Because if Abraham and Sarah cannot have children, then what's the meaning of the covenant, right? The promise depended on their being descendants. So infertility for the people of Israel looks like a threat. It looks like it might undercut the power or the efficacy of the, of the covenant. And what all, these inferti- what all these narratives show is that God's purposes for his people cannot be undercut. His purposes cannot be undercut. It's not possible to subvert God's purposes. He can overcome even what we think is a sort of fact of existence. So what I was saying was it's incorrect to see each of these infertility narratives as sort of like the guarantee that if, say, a parent prays like Hannah does and beseeches the Lord that they will get what they ask for. That's just not how this text works. In fact, the meaning of these texts is much, much broader and much bigger. The purpose of these narratives is not to illustrate how God always provides a long-awaited child, no matter how deeply um, and how felt that, that experience and that want. But God's care for his people and his faithfulness to the covenant is the point of these texts. That is, 
God is always faithful to his people. And we see that in, uh, that sort of uh, borne out in, in specific powerful ways in chapter two. So look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter two. We're beginning in verse one, and then we're gonna kind of dive into this a little bit. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's none holy like the Lord. For there's none besides you. There's no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's a powerful, powerful prayer. Praising God for what God has done. God has heard her prayer. And so the, 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 heard her prayer for a child, has given it. She's consecrated the child just as she promised. And here she prays first in attestation. My soul is jubilant. That's the exaltation. My soul exalts. It is joyful in the Lord. It's joyful in the Lord. My heart exalts and rejoices because God is holy. Okay, so two things we want to sort of draw out of this text. Two um, powers, two things about God that Hannah wants to draw our attention to. One is that God is holy, and the other is that God is sovereign. We'll draw out some of what she has to say here. God's holiness is evident in his incomparability, first of all. There's none like our God. Hannah lives in an ancient world where there, is, there are a panoply of gods available. You can choose for this one or this occasion, just like there are now. A number of gods available to sort of cling to or appeal to, right, for any form of self-justification or help. That's a, that's a common, common thing at the, in the ancient world, polytheism, worship of many gods. Hannah wants to make it clear, there are no gods like Yahweh. There are no gods like Yahweh. He's incomparable. In fact, if we're going to talk about God, capital G, there have to be, there's no other thing that could possibly compare. He's maximally great. By definition, God. Better than all the rest. He's holy. Because he's holy, second part of his holiness, he's faithful to the covenant. He's sure. Israel knows already that it's a people of the covenant that God is always faithful to the covenant. That's one of the reasons why they praise him for his holiness. It's included right in it for them. God's always faithful to us. He's always faithful to the covenant, even though we are not, they say. Even though we sin against God, we worship idols, we misbehave, or we whatever. 
God is faithful to his covenant to his people. He's holy. He's not like anybody else. He's not like any person. He's not like any other God. Holy, holy, holy. That's why the angels repeat it. Holy is he. Holy is the lamb who was slain. Not like anybody else. Not like any other God. God is sovereign. He's sovereign. So this holiness and sovereignty sort of caused Hannah to pause for a second and give a word of caution. And her word has to do with pride and arrogance. Talk no more very proudly. Let no arrogant word come from your mouth. If God is holy, then whatever pride we may have should be unmade. There isn't any pride to appeal to. Now, we're not talking here about esteem or uh, you know, high-mindedness or thinking well of ourselves. We're talking about something a little bit different. Um, Thomas Aquinas, a medieval um, theologian and philosopher, has a, kind of, has a nice, I think, accessible definition for pride. And he says pride is just simply a person striving to appear higher than they are. It's pretty simple. It's more than that, too, right? But a person striving to appear higher than they are. Um, an image of this um, occur, uh, came to me um, earlier this week. And it's a, it's a photograph taken from, I don't know, about a, 10 meters away of a baseball player being video interviewed. Anyone see this? Okay. So uh, it's, it's a pretty tall female correspondence that, that is kind of conducting the interview. It's probably a post-game interview. And um, it's a Dodgers player. Okay, that, that part's important, as you'll see in a second. It's a Dodgers player, and he's standing on a bucket that's about a, a foot and a half high. And so the camera is, is shooting this, this interview, and the female correspondent is tall, and, she's con- and, and the player is at least a foot shorter than her in real life. And so he's standing on the bucket so that on the camera, they look the same height. You follow? Okay. That's a little bit of what I'm talking about with raising yourself up higher than you are. All right? it's, a, it's a nice sort of visual for it. But human beings are just, that's, we are pathological about that. We have pride. We want to be seen in particular lights. We want to be known as a particular kind of person. And what Hannah is saying, in light of God's holiness, how could we make such an appeal? Shouldn't it be that pride in us is increasingly annihilated? Right? It's part of what it means to put a nail in our flesh. The Lord, she says, the Lord is a God of knowledge. He knows the heart. And by him, actions are weighed. So if we're thinking about the way in which God's sovereignty works, it has a couple of expressions. And here's how Hannah identifies it. God's sovereignty is expressed in salvation and in judgment. Salvation and in judgment. He rescues and he sets to right. That's how Israel understands judgment. And that's how you understand the concept of judgment in the Old Testament. When they ask God for judgment, they're saying, make it just. It's unjust. Fix it. Set things to right. Our, our social conditions, our personal conditions need your remedy. Intervene, king. That's what they're appealing to. Now, Hannah has a couple, uh, a little catalog of things here. There's, the way it works is it's carefully delineated through all the verses in the whole of the prayer. There's those he, that, the, that God, this sovereign God, brings low, and there are those he raises up. Notice this. He brings low, and these are in the, in the passages, he brings low the proud, 
Verse three, he brings low the arrogant. Verse three, he brings low the mighty, the full, the rich. Verse seven, the wicked. Verse nine, the adversary of the Lord. Verse 10, he brings them all low. He humbles them. Now notice the inverse, those that he raises up. An entirely different person, entirely different attribute. He raises up, notice, the feeble. Verse four, he raises up the hungry. Verse five, the barren. Verse five, he raises up the poor. Verse seven, the lowly. Verse seven, the needy and the godly. He reaches in. And the way that Hannah puts it, really vivid imagery, he raises up the needy from the ash heap, from the dust and desolation, from forsakenness and marginalization. He he lifts down his strong hand and pulls them up in salvation. That's the kind of God that Hannah's praying to. It's the God she worships. Now, something else is happening here. Get a clue to it right at the end of the passage at Hannah's prayer. The end of verse 10. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, his anointed Messiah. All throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel anticipate the uh, the Messiah, the anointed, the one who will come and reign over Israel forever, who will restore to them the promised land, who will always be their king. So if you flip over to Luke chapter one, uh, we're just gonna look at a few verses here. Uh, I can't read the whole chapter, mostly 13, verses 13 to 17. Here's what you want to see. Infertility as a narrative is there in Genesis, it's here in 1 Samuel, and then there are no other instances of infertility, no other stories, no other references until here in Luke, and suddenly infertility comes up again. Suddenly it appears in a narrative form. In this case, it's Zechariah, and his wife, Elizabeth, who are, the way the text describes them, blameless before the Lord. And Zechariah, it falls to him to go behind the temple screen to offer sacrifices and prayers to the people. And Gabriel appears out of nowhere. And Gabriel tells them what we're about to read right here in verse 13. The angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, the prophet, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So notice, Samuel Hannah's child, who Hannah devotes to the Lord, becomes God's prophet. It's Samuel who will anoint the first king of Israel, which occupies a huge space in 1 Samuel. Samuel is the one who anoints Saul as king, the first king of Israel. John here, so Samuel prefigures John. John here is commissioned as God's prophet to prepare the way for Jesus. The Messiah, the eternal king, after which there will be no kings. The final one, God's king, the son of God. 
John the Baptist, in that way, is prefigured by Samuel. So the theme of infertility suddenly resurfaces here. As Samuel um, prepares the way for this king of Israel, and in the same way, John the Baptist makes known that Jesus is the one. And so there at the, at the shoreline, he points him out. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There he is. My whole life has been more, more or less devoted to, to pointing out who this guy is for you, announcing and preparing his way. So these, these infertility narratives, far from putting people down, right? far from ruin, fully and entirely ruining life. So let me just sort of offer a pastoral word here. If, if, if that has been your experience, if infertility has been your experience or, or miscarriage or some other very, very hard, very wounding loss or deprivation, I'm so sorry that you're having to go through that. I'm sorry for your hurt. But let me, let me just say um, that as, as hard and as forceful and totalizing as it feels right now, that Jesus is present to you, that he, he is concerned and he cares. That's always there. It's right there in the center of all the narratives in the Bible. Jesus cares for the brokenhearted. He is present to his people. And he's present to you. So the arrival of the Lord's anointed is at hand. And so God overcomes infertility to uphold the covenant again. The new covenant now. Old covenant has passed away. Jesus, in the shedding of his blood at Calvary on the cross, atoning for the sins of the world, he has set new terms for the everlasting covenant by his blood. And so he has folded all who believe and all who trusted him into that covenant. He promises in this covenant to be for his children. He is always, always for his children. He's always for you. He's made that promise. God is active in history and he's always working out his purposes. God isn't static. He doesn't sit around sort of waiting for things to happen. God is always on the move. That's why Jesus describes relationship with him as discipleship. It's an ongoing activity. You're on the journey with him. The final genealogy listed in the Bible is the one from which Jesus descends. We get in the early part of Matthew. And the reason why it's the last one is because by his death and resurrection, Jesus has established a new covenant. And the meaning of that is profound. It means now there are no more ethnic, hear me, there's no more ethnic or familial delineation of who is and who isn't in. Jesus has opened broad his arms and said, all who believe may come to me. And he gathers up his children in love and generosity and care and mercy. It doesn't matter whose family you come from as far as Jesus is concerned. It doesn't matter what color of your skin as far as Jesus is concerned or what's your ethnicity. He gathers all who believe. Go to the nations, he tells his disciples, means everybody without distinction. Jesus comes to all, the needy, the brokenhearted, the poor, the forsaken. So participation in this beautiful covenant is no longer dependent on on those factors, these contingent biological factors. The God we worship brings life from death, joy from sorrow, hope from despair. Now that may feel, for some of you here, that may feel like 
a sort of consolation, a sort of platitude. If, if, that's, if that's you, if something in the very substance of the gospel falls hard against the chapped heart, please know that Jesus' love pierces all hardness, it mends all wounds, and there is not a wound Jesus can't heal, that he can't mend. And I know that because Jesus raises the dead. And mending wounds and bandaging hearts is not hard for him. Jesus is near the brokenhearted. Now, that doesn't mean you won't hurt, right? Some of you in this room are hurting profoundly. I know that. It doesn't mean it won't be painful and there won't be very hard days. What it does mean is that you have a Savior whose outstretched hand is there and it's nail-pierced. And he's there for you and he's there with you to company with you. Because God is life, it's his to give. It's his to give. I want to, um, before kind of making a couple of final sort of pastoral comments, I want, this, I want you to take away this idea. If you don't take any other, other idea away, take this idea away. And God may give us children. He may not, excuse me, God may not give us children, but he's made us his children. God may not give us children, and I, it's not fully explainable why. Those are the puzzles we may work through in our own minds and hearts. It's not obvious why. The important thing is, is he's made us his. He said, you're my child. Have a seat at my banquet table. Or as Hannah puts it, sit ensconced on these thrones in seat of honor, my child. That's the honor and that's the glory which Christ has bestowed on his followers, on his people. So let me just say a few things, particularly to all who've come in here today and who have felt some degree of affliction who feel like they're caught up in that vortex of grief and sadness and sorrow and who just don't know what else to do. Who just kind of, as Charlie said, just crawled through the door and happened to be finding a seat here. But then also particularly for those who have, have experienced infertility and um, the loss of, uh, of miscarriage. God is near the brokenhearted. God is near the brokenhearted. At the end of Matthew 4, right before Jesus sits to give his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew gives a sort of general description in which Jesus is walking around the wilderness and people from all over the place who are sick, who are disabled, who don't know what to do and don't know where to go are just coming to Jesus to hear him talk and to receive healing. They don't know, what, they don't know where else to go, so they foist himself on his mercies. And God and Jesus is near the brokenhearted. Far from being ambivalent about our pain and suffering, God rallies to us with care. Jesus, the Bible says, familiarized himself with our sufferings. He knows the pain of loss. He knows the pain of estrangement. He knows the pain even of death. The experiences of infertility and miscarriage in particular are profoundly wounding, and they do, I know, feel life-defining and gravity. Like everything else in life will be very, very different from now on. And that may be true. That may be true. But there's a way, there's a time for opening ourselves to some new thing that God may have, some new fresh word. Or maybe it's just opening ourselves to someone else that God has brought into our company to share with, right? to be vulnerable with. And I would encourage you, particularly if you've had one of these experiences and you've, you've never said a word about it and you've shielded yourself off fully from anyone else, no one knows. It's been a total secret. 
I'd encourage you to find someone you trust, to consider it. Find someone you trust and to be open with them in what ways you can. As I think one of the most important things we can do within this church, which is a community of broken people united in the blood of Jesus, one thing we can do is be open about our hurts in what ways we can. I know that's going to be hard. It's a tough ask. The front line wants to be there with you. It's your family. This is a family. And just like any family, it's weird. It's full of weird people that say weird things and do weird things and, you know, look weird and all kinds of stuff. It's just a weird people. It's the nature of the church. It's a bunch of really weird people. Right? But we're in it together. We're for each other. That's the only way the church can be. A community of people that are for each other. And never against. We... Rejoice with those who rejoice, and we weep with those who weep, and we could just be honest that we're not very good sometimes about weeping with those who weep. It's too risky. It's too much involved. you got to commit yourself to somebody. But that's exactly what those who are infertile have experienced the loss of miscarriage or whatever, lost, have, have, have uh, suffered other loss, loss of a family member, loss of a job. Okay, I'm gonna, a couple last things here. It's possible to join with Hannah in a couple things. On the one hand, it's possible to join with Hannah in her prayer. All right, to join with Hannah in her prayer. That God raises up the poor and the needy and the lowly and enthrones them as princes and princesses and he guards the feet of the faithful ones. That's what he says in verse 10. A beautiful imagery. In the ancient world, if you're walking along a path, you had to be really careful where your feet went because there could be scorpions or poisonous snakes or some pit you didn't know that marauders set up for you. You always had to be kind of watching, and so if any of you done hiking or backpacking, you kind of know what I'm talking about. You've got 60 pounds on your back, and you want to be careful, right? That imagery comes through here. Jesus protects the feet of his faithful ones, so they don't misstep. He's just ahead of them, preparing their way. What I'd like to suggest is that, particularly for you who have experienced infertility and miscarriage, God's just ahead of you. He guards the feet of his faithful ones. Second thing that we can join in Hannah. Um, in doing is, is, um, is hope. Hope for redemption, for consolation, for restoration, for vindication, a hope that's bound up in faith and love. Faith that God is who he says he is. Faith that God is who he says he is. And love that not only echoes Jesus' prayer, no, not my will, but thine be done. But that also echoes 1 Corinthians 13, that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. In Hebrews, we have the wonderful exhortation, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He's holy. He's for you. He's enfolded you into his family and given you a place. Now, final word here to all families of our church, particularly, but because our church is itself a family, that we bear with one another in pain and affliction. That's just what we do. There's no other way of doing it. We bear with one another in affliction. 20th century um, pastor and theologian, Henry Nowen, um, says this. The friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in our hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, 
not curing, not healing, and face with us the reality of our powerlessness. That is a friend who cares. And when I have conversations over the last few years with infertile couples, one of the things they have said they most need is for someone to just be quiet and listen and to not have a bullet point set of answers that fit their situation, their solutions. But just be present. And that's what friendship is sometimes. It's just saying, gosh, I'm so sorry that you're having to go through that. What can we do? Can I do anything for you? Or just being quiet, as Nalan suggests. God is near his people. He loves you as his children. And whatever you came in with today, whatever form of hurt, whatever affliction, whatever wound, Jesus is near you. He's near and he cares and he loves you. He loves you to the cross. 